0: Stop the Steal. Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Take the Capitol. Take the Capitol. Don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In the months since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, we've been hyper focused on the ongoing threats to democracy, namely, our most sacred democratic rituals elections and the peaceful transfer of power. Though we've also spent a lot of time talking about who is most to blame for inciting the riot and the congressional Republicans' efforts to prevent an adequate investigation and accounting of exactly what happened. The attackers and rioters themselves have been the focus of a criminal investigation that has grown to enormous proportions— so, I wanted to take a look at the status of that investigation, including what we know about who has been charged and for what, and where this is all headed. So, joining me today in studio is an award winning investigative reporter with NBC's Washington, D.C. affiliate, Scott McFarlane. Scott has interviewed presidents, senators, governors. He has done and continues to do some of the most exhaustive reporting on this unfolding investigation and the prosecution of the January 6th attackers. And in addition to NBC4, Scott regularly appears on NBC News, MSNBC, and on Sirius XM's POTUS channel. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today, and welcome to Politicology.
1: I love the show. It's good to be here. <laughs> it's
0: great to have you. I thought we'd start with a little bit of background before we dive into the details here. And I have a number of questions for you, but first, can you give our listeners a little bit of a sense of what your personal experience was on January 6th and then how you came to be one of the foremost journalists covering the aftermath of the insurrection?
1: For six months, I've suffered survivor's remorse because, like a lot of people, I was watching from home because they pooled who could be there and who couldn't be there because of COVID. So I was one of the people who didn't get the the lottery number and I couldn't go into the building. Mm. So I I watched from home and was assigned to cover it from home like a lot of people were covering news during COVID. But I know there was a moment. The first time they showed an image of somebody, one of the insurrectionists, sitting in the Senate president's chair Mm. in the Senate chamber, something hit me. And my seven-year-old, Sammy, saw daddy really upset, really scared. And, you know, sons don't see their dads scared and upset very often. He started crying and ran out of the room. And I, I remember that moment because I think a lot of Americans felt the same way, that this, this is traumatic, this is wrong, something very bad and evil is happening here. And that's a motivation. I mean, that, that was my motivation to, to make this a priority. But that said, this is the largest criminal investigation in American history, there's, there should be reporters who spend their every day yeah. following it because it's, it's an American moment.
0: Okay, let's start with a bird's eye view of where the investigation currently stands, which law enforcement entity or entities are leading the investigation, how many defendants are there now, what kinds of resources are being put into identifying and prosecuting the attackers, sort of set the table for us on, on, on where everything stands at this moment.
1: At this moment, we have about 530 defendants, um, but if you pick your feet up and look beneath them, you'll see a starting line because mm. that's kind of where we are. Mm. We're much closer to the start than the finish of this. We've had 530 defendants, one solitary sentencing, just a handful of plea agreements, and there are trial dates as far out as April 2022. Oh my God. Um, so we're just getting going. Everything, everything with this prosecution funnels through one place, the Washington, D.C. federal courthouse, which is coincidentally right there on Capitol Hill. Every defendant's going to come here. Every case is going to be argued here. And they're just getting started. And that's that's a courthouse, by the way, which is unaccustomed to that type of caseload. They, they usually get 200 cases a year. They've cut 530 or 520 defendants right now in just the insurrection. They also are backlogged from COVID. So the time, manage expectations. This is going to be a longitudinal process. It's going to take months, if not years, to adjudicate this. Um, all this is being handled by the Feds. So the Department of Justice is running point on this. You know, the FBI is the main investigative agency. The Department of Justice's Washington, D.C. office is you know, running point on the prosecutions. And we haven't seen where this road heads yet. And that's what's so fascinating. We know that the, uh, the top-line defendants right now, Ron, are the far-right groups, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, not just because they are clumped together as groups, but they're accused of conspiracy. They're accused of plotting and planning and being ready for action that day. This wasn't an organic, caught up in the moment type of group, according to prosecutors. This is a group that was ready for something. So they're the top line defendants. They face the most serious charges. But three of the Oath Keepers have pleaded guilty and have promised to help the feds. They're going to flip. And the provocative question right now is if they're the big defendants and they're flipping, who are they flipping? Who are they talking about? Nobody knows. And that's why this is a fascinating prosecution. That
0: is fascinating. Let's drill down a little bit more on the conspiracy itself. So you mentioned the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Are there any other various groups being investigated for, for planning and coordinating? And maybe can you tell us a little bit about the differences between those two groups and what they want?
1: Let's separate planning and coordinating. Yeah, okay. There's a, Planning is, um, there's three far right groups accused of that, but let me just address coordinating. There are others accused of at the moment coordinating with each other, you know, helping each other assault a police line, helping prop each other up physically, you know, connecting each themselves yeah. to breach a police line. There's a lot of coordinating that happened. The plotting is more interesting. The three percenters are one of the far-right groups accused of coordination, of plotting and planning. What's more, the three percenters, as far as I can tell, are accused of the earliest planning, as early as November, to challenge the electoral college count, to potentially use violence to do so, and to be disruptive on that day at that moment. That case, though, is in its infancy. We're just getting the first charging documents. There may be more defendants to come. Nobody has pleaded. That's, That's early. The Proud Boys, are accused of plotting and planning, but they're the ones accused of being particularly physical, Mm -hmm. using riot shields to break windows, really forcefully engaging in hand-to-hand combat, of, of marauding through the Capitol. Proud Boys are a group. That case has made some movements, but still early on. The Oath Keepers is different. The Oath Keepers are not accused of widespread violence in the Capitol that day, but they're accused of coming with a few things, coming to the party with military gear, Encrypted communications, signal technology, yeah. um, and forming a military stack to breach the police line, coordination and planning.
0: We saw images of that, yeah. right? Okay, I remember yeah. that one.
1: And and they came prepared for battle, according to the prosecutors. They engaged in planning. They even they even planned a bug out plan, which I, I learned is what happens if things go to hell.
0: Oh, they had wow. planned to
1: find find uh, some type of housing temporarily in the mountains of Kentucky if things went to hell. And so they couldn't be surveilled by drones. I mean, they, they had elaborate planning, according to prosecutors. But that case is an early victory for the prosecutors. Their real first early victory. They've, as I mentioned, they've got three plea agreements. They've had what they call productive plea discussions with many of the others. This is the early traction in the case.
0: What charges... Exactly, are they facing? You mentioned some plea agreements. Um, I think it's important for us to understand. There's there's a lot of a um, lot of language associated with the prosecution, the investigation. And I think some of these words tend to be used interchangeably, and uh, we don't necessarily need a master class in linguistics here. But I think it's important to understand the difference between sedition, seditious conspiracy, and some of the other insurrection, uh, riot. How how are prosecutors um, what are the words that we need to understand in order to understand what they're looking for in terms of in terms of actual crimes committed and, and, and what people are being charged with?
1: There's different tiers of charges. Okay. And the FBI director, when he testified before Congress, made explicitly clear, there are two different tiers of defendants in his mind. There okay. are those who were there, unlawfully in the Capitol, obstructing the electoral college count, but who are not accused of engaging in violence or of breaking things. That's a lower tier. The higher tier, people who assaulted police. So when you see the assault charge, that means it's serious. Um, Destruction of property. In a few cases, um, they're accused of bringing guns, which is against the law in the District of Columbia, if you're not licensed, but also noteworthy in this particular context. (laughs) And conspiracy is the big one. So I get asked every day um, on social media and sometimes in person, when's the sedition charge coming? When's the the insurrection charge coming? When are the members of Congress getting charged? There have been no tea leaves in the thousands of court filings we've read on that. Which may mean which may be an indication there's nothing to come on that, or just that the prosecutors are keeping their powder dry, um, which they should do if they have any plans to go down that road, so nobody knows where this is headed. Anybody who says they know doesn't know, anybody who knows isn't saying um, i wouldn't I would preclude nothing at this point,
0: okay. were there multiple independent conspiracies as far as you've been able to gather? Or in other words, were there different groups each with, we know there were different groups, but did they have different motivations or different intents in, in terms of what they were seeking? Were, were they all more or less following the same game plan, which is to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power?
1: It's a great question. At, at this point, the different groups who are accused of conspiracy, they haven't the feds haven't synthesized them as having plotted together. It doesn't mean they didn't. They, they just haven't articulated that argument. They may be siloed. But I do see in some of the, the court filings from prosecutors, some indication that the people who were part of this conspiracy were recognizing that there could be some, my phrase here, useful idiots. Sure. Like they, they, we, we can use the anger of the rest of the mob to help us, even if, they're not, even if they're not part of this plan or don't know what they're about to be part of. Right. So it's possible the conspirators who are planning this big engagement to disrupt the Electoral College count were counting on the fact there'd be other people around them who just by, by sheer force of numbers right. could be useful. Even if they weren't part of the uh, the concept originally,
0: and those are the people who, uh, you know, we've heard lots about people getting swept up in the moment and going with the crowd, and presumably those are the people that they were counting on.
1: Not only that, but the first and only person to be sentenced in this so far was a grandmother from Indiana, a forty nine year old woman named Anna Morgan Lloyd. She pleaded guilty to the least of charges, of unlawful picketing and parading misdemeanor, and even in her case, the prosecutor said, "You know what? We want to give her three years probation." we don't want to, we're not going to recommend prison for her. She didn't break anything, didn't hurt anybody, was in the Capitol for just a few minutes. We're going to recommend three years probation um, and and supervision. Keep an eye on her. And the judge went along with it, said, you get exactly that. We're going to give her three years probation, no prison. We're going to give the prosecutors exactly what they want. Because when she got up in court, she apologized to the American people, explained that she just got caught up in it and said that she was um, amazed and frightened and horrified by what became of that day. Didn't anticipate it. Um, there's two telling things there. Yeah. When you don't injure anybody, break anything. You have no criminal history and you apologize. Look at what can happen to you. You, you avoid prison. But it's, the judge gave the prosecutor exactly what the prosecutor asked for. That's a bad sign for other defendants moving forward. Yeah,
0: that's a very good point. So as far as we know, has anyone been charged with a crime who was not physically at the Capitol? At the Capitol?
1: No. In the Capitol, yes. yes. So there, there, there are multiple people charged who never laid foot inside. That's because they're accused of assaulting police outside or other you know criminal engagements outside. That's going to be a wedge issue. There are going to be defendants who argue, I never actually went inside. You can't charge me the way you're charging others. Or if you're going to give him or her probation and he or she was in the Capitol and I wasn't, you shouldn't give me anything. Yeah, That'll be a wedge issue eventually. But yeah, there are several people charged who never actually stepped foot inside.
0: And presumably, prosecutorial discretion is going to play a huge role in how this uh, in how this unfolds because of the because of the different tiers and different levels of d- multiple different crimes that any of these people could be charged with. Okay, I uh, I want to talk about the former president. Prosecutors' filings have been pretty matter of fact about. Uh, President Trump's influence and the consequences of his words and actions, even though today, as he continues to, uh, for example, lie about an August reinstatement, I saw that prosecutors oppose a rioter's request to end GPS monitoring because there might be additional political violence on the horizon. Can you expand on what they've said about the president's role on January 6th and in still influencing the attackers to this day.
1: I'm glad you picked up on that. That's a pivotal court filing of the thousands I've read. That's the one that hit me the hardest. And I'll explain in a moment. There are three groups of people talking about Donald Trump's role in this. Some defense lawyers, the prosecutors, and some judges. We haven't heard defendants talk about him yet because they haven't had to. There's only been one sentencing, and she didn't talk about Trump. Mm-hmm. We'll hear more of what defendants have to say as this process goes along, and it's going to be fascinating. Some defense lawyers have already said, Donald Trump or politicians misled my client. Or my client had a case of foxitis, was watching too much Fox News, and got caught up in some poisonous political mindsets. Um, some defense lawyers have tried it. I'm not sure where it's taking them, but we've heard a little bit of that. Prosecutors are going farther and farther with Mm -hmm. this argument about Donald Trump. And the motion you referenced is pivotal. There's a guy named Alan Harkrider who's accused of bringing a tomahawk axe to the Capitol that day. And it was a close call But they released him from jail to home detention pending trial. The judge called it a close call, but he got released until trial. And he wants to loosen up those restrictions a little bit. So he filed a new motion seeking to either get a curfew or limit the GPS tracking. He wants to just have a little more liberation in his life until trial. Mm. That's, relatively speaking, a pretty minor motion and a minor argument in the scheme of things. And the prosecutors fired back with a bazooka and said, no, we need you to stay on your current restrictions. And here's why. Donald Trump is making it, in their words, insinuating he could come back to office in August. And there's right wing or cable news media that is perpetuating that argument and giving it credibility. And that's a threat. In Harkrider's case, and an other defendant's case, according to prosecutors. That is killing a fly with a boulder legally to pull out that argument on such a minor motion. But it feels like the prosecutors are just going a little further and further each time they make the argument about Donald Trump, either to to, to measure the judges and their reaction, to test out how that argument's gonna go, maybe test market it, see how, how see how it works. But they we've, we've heard judges talk about it too, and that's perhaps the most impactful thing. There's a Michigan defendant named Carl Dresch who was accused, again, of violent activities, January 6th, and had a criminal pass. So they, they held him in jail till trial. He wanted to get out. And the judge said no, said in his case, Dresh has a solitary source of information and it's Donald Trump. And that's dangerous, the judge said. She ordered him held. So we got three parties talking about Trump, defense lawyers, prosecutors, and judges. And the further we go along, the more this whole thing becomes about Donald Trump. And I expect that to increase in, in frequency and in volume, as the prosecution goes along.
0: Okay, that triangulation is is very interesting to watch. I uh, have a bit of a sidebar question, but as we as we talk about these various groups that were that were organizing and what they wanted, and and the people involved, is there a reason that we don't hear the term domestic terrorism or domestic terrorist? Or domestic terrorist organization applied to these people in these groups um, like we have, for example, during the September 11th attacks? Is there a reason that we're not using the same language for that?
1: I I don't know if we're there yet. I mean, the cases could evolve into that. Um, I'm not sure it's relevant at this particular stage. um, Okay. But there are people out there, I suspect, who would say the thing speaks for itself. Yeah. This felt like a terrorist act. These people were domestic. It may, maybe it's redundant. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see that phraseology come up eventually. Okay. Uh,
0: we know about the hang Mike Pence chant and the gallows erected outside the Capitol, uh, but Pelosi was also a prime target, um, if not the primary target of the attackers, right? Who else was on the hit list that day?
1: Those are the two big ones. I mean, okay. the, the, Mike Pence and the gallows and that, that 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 ominous video of him being escorted, evacuated out the back door is, is haunting but the more I read and the more cases I see, the more frequently I see Nancy Pelosi being threatened in vulgar ways, in misogynistic ways, in explicit ways, every case feels like it ends up you know, with some type of footnote of, oh, and he threatened Nancy Pelosi or she threatened Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I think we're all quite fortunate everybody was evacuated when they were evacuated that day. Um, there's also just this broader pattern of misogyny, yeah. which may not surprise anyone, Doesn't surprise me, but a lot of the defendants in these cases have significant criminal histories involving women. Mm. And here they are, accused of being part
0: of an insurrection. Interesting. So some of the most directly impacted victims of the attack were the officers defending the Capitol. Can you talk about what the attackers allegedly uh, did to the men and women on the literal front lines?
1: Dozens of them were hurt. Dozens. Some of them were severely maimed. But let's actually look at the list of things that yeah. the attackers brought with them. So we know they brought hockey sticks, baseball bats, sharpened American flagpoles, an axe, a knife, scissors, a tourniquet, pepper spray, chemical spray, bear spray, and guns in certain cases, brass knuckles, batons, pipes. That's what they brought. And that doesn't count what they found. Tree limbs, sticks, sticks. And stolen police riot shields. That's what was used against, or at least brandished against, police um, who were fighting with their tools—chemical spray and shields and batons. In some cases, those items were taken from them. There were defendants accused of bringing zip ties, taser devices. Um, so police had to face off with that, and they didn't have the didn't have the the orders, or perhaps the reason to draw their firearms. Lord knows what would have happened if they drew a firearm against a crowd that vastly outnumbers them oh, that may have been armed too.
0: Oh, man. So as you've said, there have been just a few defendants who've taken the plea deal so far. Um, is the Department of Justice being especially selective with who they offer these deals to, or um, are the defendants in large part planning on fighting the charges?
1: I think in the federal system, if it's any, if history is any indicator— an overwhelming number will plead guilty or take a plea. Um, I think the the numbers are somewhere between 95 and 97% of federal criminal defendants don't go to trial. So I don't have any reason to believe this is going to be wildly different. That said, I've talked to enough defense lawyers who say, my client doesn't understand how what he did is criminal because he thinks that he was defending Donald Trump and the president and democracy. And he thinks Trump's going to swoop in and save him. So there's some denialism among the defendants, even those who are in pretrial detention. That may lead to some more trials if they they don't understand. The strategy of the plea agreements, I can't speak to that because there may be an assortment of reasons, but I'll note the Department of Justice has been amplifying its plea deal with the Oath Keepers, announcing it, making it known to everyone that there's been plea agreements, sending any kind of message to other defendants, to other people who are still wanted, and that we got some top-line guys and they're talking to us. So we want to show you some progress.
0: We've discussed on the podcast when the attorney, I believe it was for the shaman, essentially used a lot of offensive uh, language, but was claiming insanity on the part of his client. And do we have any um, any sense whether there will be a lot more claims of, of, of insanity uh, on the part of these defendants and whether or not that's going to carry any weight? In, in in the prosecution.
1: There are other defendants arguing um, or at least undergoing competency exams. In fact, there's one I'm fixated on, a guy from Utah named Landon Copeland, who was known to, to, to some people because during one of his court appearances in May, he just screamed a string of vulgarities at the judge. Screamed that you know, he was entitled to not be charged. That he, you're not going to get me if I don't want to be gotten. And used a bunch of f bombs. And so his his case gained notoriety through that means. Uh, I've done a couple of jailhouse phone interviews with Landon. He's got a lot to say. He's a military veteran. They're doing competency exams. I mean, the the, the lack the, the self destructive nature of outbursts in court almost make you need to conduct a competency exam. We'll see if that becomes germane as this case goes along. Jacob Chansley is the so-called QAnon shaman. Yeah, they, they they flew him from Alexandria or Arlington, Virginia, out to Colorado for a for a Federal Bureau of Prisons competency exam, and that became relevant in his efforts to get released from jail. And those efforts failed. Hmm. He's still locked up. Hmm. We'll see how we'll see how many other defendants go down that road. But at this point, it hasn't really impacted anybody's case.
0: Hasn't really worked that well, right? What are the most critical questions to which we still don't know the answers, and, and how many people still haven't even been identified, namely the, the, the pipe bomb placer that we, we're looking for now?
1: Three huge questions remain. That's the first one in my mind. Somebody left active, destructive pipe bombs outside Republican and Democratic Party headquarters on January 5th. Those things, in, a, in isolation, yeah. in a vacuum, how big a story is that? Oh,
0: Massive. And that'll
1: dominate headlines for weeks. And it should. And and they don't know who it is. I mean, they they have no arrests. They keep pushing their tip line. They keep showing the videos, which indicates to me they don't have a good suspect just yet. That's an unanswered question that's transcendent to me. What's more, even the D.C. police chief has said, those would have been wildly destructive if they went off. And even the D.C. police chief has acknowledged it was a very effective diversion. Mm. They were discovered 15 minutes before the mob started breaking through barriers. So- that's wow. a big unanswered question, and to me, it's the one I'm fixated on. Second unanswered question is how many more? You alluded to this. Um, we're at 520 or so. The FBI director has said there are probably hundreds more investigations underway. We know there were 800 people in the Capitol illegally that day, according to the acting Capitol Police Chief, and we know some of those arrests were people who never came in. So the ceiling is 800, 900, maybe a 1,000, so maybe we're, maybe we're only halfway there. Um, that's an unanswered question. I, I'm going to add, uh, put a little asterisk on that. I have an interesting side note. I'd like to know who erected the gallows. I'm not certain that was an unlawful. I'm not certain it was, maybe it was, I'm no no legal expert. Maybe it's freedom of speech. Maybe it's wildly illegal. Maybe it's somewhere in between. But there hasn't been even an allusion to that in any of the court filings. Okay. I'm intrigued by that. Okay. But the, the bigger question is whose idea was it? Yeah. Whose idea was it to go, not just to be there, not just to march from the White House to the Capitol, but to go in and break in and do what happened on January 6th? And there's been some charges of conspiracy, but no overarching answer to whose singular idea was this?
0: Yeah. Okay. Can you give us a, uh, a peek into the future uh, in terms of the, the developments that you're watching right now, what we should expect to play out over the next couple of weeks in terms of prosecutions, events that, that, that we're, we're going to end up seeing on, on on our news feeds?
1: Let me tell you something I haven't reported yet that I think is, is worth watching. On July 19th, it's a Monday, there's going to be the first what I call big sentencing, a plea agreement with a defendant who's accused of doing more than just unlawful entering. Guy's name is Paul Hodgkins. Now he's not accused of damaging anything or hurting anybody. And remember I said, that's maybe a lower level case, but he was in the Senate chamber. He's one of those people, the feds say was actually in the chamber walking around in those haunting images I alluded to earlier. Paul Hodgkins is one of them. Now he's asking for mercy and leniency. And he filed, um, earlier in the week, a kind of a, a big allegorical, um, Motion about how in the Civil War Grant showed Lee leniency, so he needs to be shown leniency as well. I'm not sure what the parallel he's trying to draw there was. And it was an interesting choice of comparison. It's an
0: interesting choice of comparison.
1: Um, but he's making his argument that show me leniency. And he actually argues that you know, the first person to come forward and plead guilty deserves credit for being brave. And okay. But what happens to him? Does he get the three years probation, no prison time because you didn't hurt anybody treatment? If so, that's going to raise a lot of flags he's in the Senate chamber in those images that scared my seven-year-old scared me and scared America. He gets no prison or does he get yeah. a robust prison sentence? That yeah. could be a great barometer of where things are headed. A good, at least a good canary in the coal mine. Yeah. I'd watch that. But also watch in, in August and September, I expect a quick sequence of more plea agreements. Okay. Um, I think they're going to get rid of what they call the, you know, I call the low hanging fruit. They would call the lower tier charges, um, almost readying themselves for the bigger fights, the bigger battles, which is against those who are held in jail pre-trial, those far-right groups, the conspirators, and those who are particularly violent.
0: We've seen everyone now from Donald Trump to Paul Gosar to even Vladimir Putin try to turn Ashley Babbitt into a martyr. And we discussed that in our most recent Weekly Roundup episode. But I'm wondering if you're learning anything about the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. Uh, while you're following these cases, who was she? Who was she there with? What was she trying to do? Do we know anything about that?
1: I know that the people standing to her left are, ch- are charged with, with 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 federal crimes. People charged of smashing in that window with a helmet on their hand. People uh, accused of being around her are charged criminals. So, read into that what you may, but put the things in context. If you were next to her, you're a criminal. If you broke open the window. That she climbed through. The prosecutors say you're a criminal. Um, I've heard right wing media try to guess, estimate, or tell us they have confidence that they know who the shooter was. Not sure where they're getting that from. Um, I've seen the politicization of Ashley Babbitt by my members of Congress. I don't sure what to make of that, other than there must be some constituency for that. Yeah, I, I, I'm a I'm a pure believer in 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 how Congress functions. People who are elected to Congress are there to represent constituents, and when they say things, they believe they are and probably are representing some constituency. So when I hear a member of Congress say, crazy thing X, it's because there's some subset of Americans who believe crazy thing X. There's a market for that. There's a market for that. And and, and that's that's a member of Congress representing a constituency, which is kind of their job. Although we go into new levels when we start talking about falsehoods and, and false election narratives and preposterousness.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also important to note, and our listeners will be familiar with this, but a lot of the crazy things that get said to the market that is there to eat it up often are not that representative's own constituents. They're from all over the country, and that goes to the problem of how grassroots money is now funding some of the most extreme rhetoric. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a great example of this, and and we've talked about it before. But um, I wonder, that's a great segue and I wonder if you could speak to, um, first of all, of the coverage you've seen, what have been you know, some of the most successful of the false uh, or alternative narratives that are being pushed in, in trying to reframe or whitewash what happened on the 6th? And what are the consequences of that? And uh, feel free to offer an antidote if you have one.
1: (laughs) What's effective and what I don't like is people saying we need to move past this. Um, We need to get past this so that we can end the trauma. And there's some... Audience for that people who don't want to think about it, people who don't want to you know relive it in their minds, people who don't want to think about their seven year olds crying. I understand the appetite for let's just get past this and move on.
0: Presumably because they have some psychological culpability attached to that.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, that's effective. I think it's counterproductive. If we don't if we don't make out everything that happened that day, what led to it? What you know. Triggered these people, triggered this concept, and we don't figure out everybody responsible. Certainly prone for it happening again. So I think we, we. This is one of those things we can't just move past. That's effective. What's ineffective is the argument that this was not an armed insurrection, felt like a group of tourists, or was more harmless than the media is letting you think it was. Because there's freaking
0: pictures, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. video. Yeah. I,
1: I can see <laughs> these are not tourists. I mean, guy had a tomahawk axe, according to prosecutors. Three of them were packing guns, according to prosecutors. I see the hand-to-hand combat yeah. and the maiming of our police officers. That argument's not effective. It may gin up fundraising. It may gin up a base support, but it's not changing the hearts and minds of Americans.
0: Yeah, although we do have photographic evidence that the planet Earth is round, and yet <laughs> there are flat, flat earthers Earth society, among us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd love to sort of close with... Um, some of the challenges that you've run into personally in in trying to report facts about this what is has become a highly divisive event in our post-truth political environment um and i and i hate to call it that but that's just where we are what have been the most difficult parts of this for you and and have you received any backlash for just doing the reporting
1: <laughs> yeah okay i, mean, I- before January 6th, I could walk into my son's PTA meeting. Nobody knows who the hell I am. I mean, I'm a local television reporter in Washington, DC, which means there's a subset of people who know me who watch a local television in Washington, care about the school board or the DC council or the state legislature. And now I get regular threats um, emailed to me, wishing my wife harm, wishing my kids harm, um, including from one defendant in the case. Now I had to pull my email address off the website, off my social media, had to close my direct messages, had to inoculate myself, which is not the muscle memory of an investigative reporter. Right. We love to right. get emails and tips. Yeah. I got to shut myself down from that because I'm reporting on like court filings. I'm not giving my opinion. I'm not saying you know Trump is bad. Trump is good. I'm not saying this guy has it coming. I'm reporting what Justice Department and defense lawyers are filing, and that's triggering people to, to give me threats. Um, so I was an unknown quantity outside of my immediate television audience in, in December. Now, I, I say this just for context. I've got attorneys general calling me. I've got members of Congress calling me just to get intel so that they know better what's happening in the cases. And I think that's that's not self-aggrandizing. That's just no, the fact that all. I think too many reporters are fixated on the political ramifications of this and not enough on the thing. Yeah, like, What the hell happened? And who else is involved? And if you don't track the day-to-day if you don't track the fact that they file these court filings on Saturdays, on Sunday mornings, on the 4th of freaking July, which my wife doesn't like, that I'm on my computer on the 4th of July, that I, on Father's Day, I ran into the TV station because there was court filings. More importantly, on Mother's Day, I was on the computer checking for court fi- If you don't do yeah. that, you're going to miss something. Yeah. Like we talked earlier about this little minor motion in the case of Alan Harkrider, yeah. just trying to get curfew instead of GPS. And the feds show a big thing. Mm. If you don't read every filing, you're going to miss something. So, there's only a few of us who are diligently reading everything the Justice Department puts out, and there are thousands. If you don't do this, you're going to miss the story. And if we don't pay attention to this story, if we worry too much about what it means in 2022 or 2024, or if Congressman Gosar is going to get primaried, or if Congressman Katko is going to get primaried, we're missing the big picture. And. I'm a political nerd. I find the political talk fascinating, but somebody's got to talk about this case. And even though I'm just a local news reporter, this happens to be, I'm a former congressional staffer, so I know the Hill pretty well. And one of the things I cover at NBC4 in Washington is the DC federal court. It's my Hmm. beat. All the cases are going through there. So this is in my wheelhouse. And at this point, you threaten me, you say nasty things to me. Now I'm more motivated to stay on the case because clearly I'm doing something that's going in the right direction.
0: Absolutely. Before I let you go, Scott, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our our listeners with? This is going to be jarring for a lot of people. I think precisely for the reasons that you articulated, you've got very high profile figures coming to you directly for information because a lot of the media that's available around this is very difficult to parse for a lot of people.
1: I, I reinforce this. No one who's talking knows where this is headed. People may say, well, I haven't seen members of Congress charged. They mustn't be, that mustn't be happening. Or I haven't seen anybody charged with sedition. That mustn't be happening to the same effect. I bet members of Congress are going to get charged or there's going to be sedition. Nobody freaking knows. And so that's why you've got to be mindful of this story. That's why there should always be an appetite until the final case closes. And somebody says that's the final case. Federal prosecutions take years. Got to be patient. Don't turn your page on this in August or September. Because this was a transformative moment in all of our lives. This is a moment in American history they're going to talk about for generations to come. And we were there. We we, we we watched it and lived it. Don't let this one go. This is an open book, and we're in the early chapters.
0: Scott, where can anyone who wants to follow along find you on the internet?
1: Every hour on Twitter, at, at a minimum, uh, at McFarlane News, M-A-C, McFarlane News. Um, I, I, I'm i not trying to—, to, to have an artificial volume of updates, but this story has enough to sustain hourly updates. So that's
0: what I'm doing. Scott McFarlane, thank you for the work you're doing. You're welcome back anytime. We'd love to have you. I'll take you up on This it. was terrific. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. You can also help us by sharing this episode and by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.